Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vincent. You can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcast.com. You can also check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. And if you would like to support our ministry, a great way to do that is to become a patron. You can do that at patreon.com forward slash the particular Baptist. So today is going to be a little different than some of the topics that we dealt with before. Um, we're going to be doing some textual history discussion. Now, I think we've talked about some of this in the past, and we've definitely talked about text criticism on the show before, but I don't think we've gone into the depth that I'm going to go to today uh, as it relates to some of the history. Uh, so this is going to be a little bit more of a, a technical episode uh, and definitely more Histor historical fact-driven episode talking about uh, some of the differences between uh, Theodore Bezos' approach to the text of Scripture, at least with the New Testament, and Erasmus's approach to the New Testament. Um, so I think that hopefully will be uh, helpful today. Um, I see somebody already put a comment in here, Michael Farrell, this needs to be taken seriously. I think there is a major error here. I'm not so thanks for the comment, brother. I'm not sure what area you're referring to. Uh, maybe you can clarify that a little bit, and maybe I can address it if uh, you can flush it out a little bit more. But thank you for your comment, sir. Um, but, you know, the topic of text criticism, especially, I think, in reform circles, is one that is pretty controversial in terms of what that looks like, uh, how is that to be done, what approaches to be taken. So I think you see a pretty sharp divide between some different camps within reform circles. Obviously, I think you have a, a broader evangelical point of view on things that, and there's differing views in, in broader evangelicalism, but I think in the reformed circles, I think especially in the RB circles, you're going to find some pretty controversial discussions surrounding this topic. So I hope today that the historical discussion can help Kind of bring forth a little bit more uh, for you know this discussion, contribute to the discussion more, and hopefully be helpful as we go through this. Um, I, I think, as many as you know, I'm not a I'm not a confessional text guy. I don't hold to that position, um, but I also wouldn't say I'm I'm strictly a modern critical text guy either. Um, I want to be clear on that, and I'll explain that in a second. But I I do think there are some historical problems with uh, confessional bibliology. Um, and I think the position as a whole is problematic. Um, I, th I think there's other areas that you could probably bring out to discuss some of the problems. But I, I think for me personally, the biggest issues have to do on a historical level. Okay, so I'm going to, before I dive into looking at Erasmus and Beza, uh, I want to just discuss a little bit about some of the confessional bibliology side um, from Dr. Jeff Riddle, some stuff that he's put out, because he really does speak for the, the confessional text or the confessional bibliology position. If you want to know what the main tenets of confessional bibliology are, go listen to Dr. Riddle. He has a podcast that he does um, called Word Magazine that's pretty much dedicated to the, the discussion of of uh, text criticism uh, and talking about confessional bibliology and things like that. Uh, so, and, and he's done the Kept Pure in All Ages conference. I think they've done that for two or three years. There's a lot of material there you can find on YouTube um, with discussing this position. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of helpful things that are there. Um, but in terms of where Erasmus and Beza fit into this, I think that understanding, at least on Erasmus's side, looking at some of his theological positions as it relates to the text of Scripture, uh, I think is going to be helpful as uh, we look at this. This isn't, this uh, lesson here, if you want to call it that, isn't really a strict critique of confessional theology, but I think it's good to point out what I think some are, or some inconsistencies here in light of what I'm discussing today with Erasmus and Beza. I think that the historical information that I'm going to be providing uh, can be helpful as you know th this debate continues to go on. 
So in looking at you know, Erasmus, we have to see, is Erasmus really part of the TR tradition, right? And is this part of the confessional bibliology tradition? Uh, and it seems so, you know, looking at some things that Dr. Riddle has put out. Um, if you look at Word Magazine, episode 255, in the section titled Texas Receptus, um, that the received text, Dr. Riddle talks about the received text is what the scholastics had in mind, which included Erasmus's 1516 edition, at the very least. Um, and of course, Riddle is uh, quoting Mueller at this point from his Dictionary of Latin and Greek Theological Terms, second edition which uh, is a very helpful resource, and I'd recommend you get it if you don't have it. Uh, great to have in your library as a reference and something that you can pull down if you need to understand some of the, the scholastic understandings of these things among the Protestants. But I think this episode, uh, episode 255 of Word Magazine, is really helpful because Jeff provides a pretty good overview, I think, of his position um, you know, instead of having to dig through a bunch of material to see where confessional bibliology really lies, I mean, you can if you want to see it fleshed out more. But if you just want, you know, a 30,000 foot view of what, you know, here's some basic definitions of what I believe in this position, this is a really good episode to go to because I think he, he provides some of those basic tenets that uh, you can look at. Uh, later on in that particular episode he he breaks the episode up into chapters on youtube which is helpful for you know when you're trying to reference things or or find certain parts of the the episode uh there's a section called lane keister he's responding to amanda keister where where uh lane keister says that the protestant orthodox accepted um you know the printed edition not the printed editions as a whole but only certain aspects of the tr and Dr. Riddle goes on to say that Keister's assertion is incorrect and in that the Protestant Orthodox affirmed only readings from the TR, not the TR itself, which Mueller had said was accepted in printed form by the Orthodox. And Jeff is clearly on Mueller's side here, and he falls in line with what the Scholastic Orthodox would have thought. And then he defines what confessional bibliology is in the episode, laying out that the TR is meant to be retrieved as the standard New Testament. Um, and that's just part of the definition of confessional biography. Obviously, you're including the Masoretic text of the Old Testament in there, but we're look, we're focusing on the New Testament today, so I'm focusing on that. The TR is meant to be retrieved as the standard New Testament. Modern critical text is not supposed to be there. It is the standard New Testament as found in the Texas Receptus. And since he has accepted the TR definition provided by Mueller, that includes Erasmus. So we can say that at least Erasmus's 1516 edition is part of that uh, TR tradition that's accepted in the confessional bibliology, uh, the confessional bibliology position. Now, that doesn't mean that they accept the entire work of Erasmus, lock, stock, and barrel without any nuance or exceptions. Uh, I would never say that, um, but I do think that at least where they think he got it right, they're going to accept his work because uh, it's part of that received tax, part of the, the TR tradition. And another part of you know, confessional bibliology is that the modern critical text and modern textual criticism should be rejected, at least as the standard, because it is not consistent with, you know, a confessional bibliology, i.e. a theological position. Now, there's an article that Dr. Riddle wrote called A Defense of the Traditional Text of Scripture, and I think you can find this for free on academia.edu. I think that's where I got it. Uh, on page 11, he says, quote, there are some fundamental principles of bibliology, the doctrine of scripture, which should inform our approach to the text of scripture, end quote. So clearly a, a theological framework is at play here in how one approaches the text of scripture. So that would include your text criticism. That would include your understanding of which text to use, et cetera. That all has to be informed by a confessional bibliology. So your theological position is what informs uh, your understanding of the text. That's what Dr. Riddle uh, seems to be saying here. Now, in his conclusion of that same article, he provides three reasons why we should reject modern textual criticism, not simply take out the good and throw out the bad, you know, at least in a, using the, the text or at least that 
position or that uh, the modern textual criticism method as you know something that's to be on par with uh, the TR in a, in a confessional bibliology. It's to be rejected. Uh, you can see this on pages 17 and 18, and he provides you know epistemology, uh, confessional bibliology, um, and then I believe the other one had to do with uh, historical reasons. Um, but in my opinion, they all flow from this understanding of what he already laid out on page 11, that the, how we approach scripture needs to be from a theological standpoint. Now, one thing that's interesting, as we're going to see today, Erasmus, again, who is, whose work is accepted as part of the TR tradition in the conf confessional bibliology position, he was far from holding a confessional bibliology, especially on the principle of infallibility um, of the words of scripture coad verbum, which Jeff, um, you know, talks about in his episode uh, that we just mentioned, Word Magazine 255, that he says is a problem with modern textual criticism. And yet Erasmus's work is not rejected for the same reasons. So I think there's uh, some double standards historically uh, going on here. Um, Jeff has also said in a lecture from the Kep Pure in All Ages conference titled Reasoning with Them That Believe, uh, that they don't think Erasmus got some things right about his initial printing of the TR in 1516 because of his theology. And then this is compared to Scrivener, who printed um, a well-known and widely used version of the TR in the 19th century. He's compared to Scrivener that his theology is not relied upon for his work. In other words, they don't rely on Erasmus' theology for things he got right in his text. And it doesn't matter that Erasmus was a Roman Catholic when he produces texts as long as there are correct readings in that text. And contextually, Jeff is speaking against the attempt to discredit the TR based on the fact that Erasmus was a Roman Catholic, to which theological standing in effect, Jeff says, who cares if he was a Roman Catholic? Who cares? as it relates to what he got right uh, in the text. So they simply disconnect Erasmus' theology from the correct things he, in the text produced at the very least. Uh, so Erasmus' theology really isn't that important in the formulation of his text, at least for those things that he got right. Uh, it, really, the, the important thing to them is what did he get right? But for some reason, the theological position is of great importance when it comes to the production and use of the modern critical text and the use of modern textual criticism. So if Erasmus' theology was held to the same standard as modern textual practice and text, Erasmus's work and his methods, um, even those things that he used to, to get the right text, quote unquote, uh, he would, it would have to be rejected or at least put in a lower standing than it is now. So I see a double standard happening here on a historical level. So I want to provide some historical information from Beza and Erasmus that I think will help to inform uh, that discussion more. Now, the discussion around Beza, I think, is helpful at least to see the contrast between the approach of the text that Erasmus took and what a Reformation understanding of the text would look like. Uh, because as we're going to see, Beza had some very stark differences between how Erasmus came to the text. Uh, and we're going to see some of those. I don't think Beza's understanding of the text uh, would be any threat to a confessional text position. In fact, I think that the confessional text position would be much more in line with Beza than it would be Erasmus, um, in spite of, it, you know, he he relied on, um, never relied on, on printed text, which again, I, I think is consistent with Jeff's position. So I don't think it's threat, but I think it's helpful to see that contrast between Erasmus and Beza. Okay. So in terms of the presentation I'm going to be giving today, a lot of the work I'm relying on uh, Kron's book, Beyond What is Written. This is a very helpful work if you're wanting to look at um, the textual critical approach of Beza and Erasmus. Uh, Kron's is a scholar in, uh, he got his PhD in theology from a school in Amsterdam. He's lectured New Testament at a school in Amsterdam. Um, so he, he does quite a bit of work on the New Testament. Um, this is not a very accessible book. It's quite expensive. If you look online, you'll see what I'm talking about. Uh, so, you know, don't break the bank for it. But 
it's if you can get it, it's very, very helpful. I know it helped me in, in kind of looking at some of the historical uh, understandings surrounding text critical work in the 16th century, especially with Erasmus. And Erasmus's work, um, at least to some extent, became the standard. So looking at how Erasmus did things gives us an idea of how this type of work was done during his time. So it, it was very eye-opening um, and I think is very, very helpful. And this is part of a series. Uh, this is number 35 in the New Testament Tools and Studies uh, series edited by Bruce Metzger and Bart Ehrman. Um, now, you know, take that for what it's worth. Uh, Bart Ehrman is a agnostic, uh, pretty liberal scholar when it comes to the text of Scripture. So you have to, you know, take his work. Uh, with a grain of salt. And there are things in here that I think are not uh, very helpful. As we'll see later, Kranz is quite critical of Beza when it comes to his understanding um, of uh, the infallibility of scripture. He seems to criticize him as it relates to that. Obviously, I wouldn't agree with that. So there, there's some issues there. But from a pure historical standpoint, this book is extremely helpful. Um, so I'm going to be using, I rely on this a lot. I also use Renahan's To the Judicious and Impartial Reader in his discussion on Chapter 1, Paragraph 8 of Our Confession and Milne's book on the preservation of Scripture. And I think there were some other uh, smaller sources, but these are the big three that I pull from. Uh, let's see here. So I think, you know, I think that this will be helpful. Let's see. Michael, you said, is our confession speaking of printed editions and authoritative texts? or the handwritten uh, copies. Um, if you're talking about what's been preserved, um, it would definitely be the, the handwritten copies. Um, I think you can see that Renahan seems to bring that out in his commentary. And also, if you look at Milne's book, <clears throat> he, he talks about that in here as well, is what Kept Pure in All Ages refers to uh, is the extant texts, which would refer to the manuscripts. So uh, that's what at least the second line of Baptist confession of faith would be referring to. I mean, I mean the, the language in uh, second LBCF one eight and WCF one eight, I think are identical. And at least the very least, the principles are identical. Um, so from my perspective, you know, I'm not advocating for every aspect of modern textual criticism. I'm not, I want to be clear on that. Um, I do think that there are some problems in the modern critical uh, text position. I think that uh, there's a over-reliance on empirical evidence rather than having a balance with a theological position. <clears throat> but I think the confessional text position swings too far the other way. So I, I'm trying to find a place in the middle that we can use both aspects of both of those things and do so in a consistent manner uh, and try to be consistent with our confession as well as um, consistent in general uh, to be able to accurately uh, present these issues. I think that we should be able to be discerning without throwing out an entire position as we are, you know, as we would with medieval scholastics like Thomas Aquinas or a Duns Scotus um, or people like that. We can take out the good and we can throw out the bad. And I also think there are helpful principles taught in the confessional text position, um, such as like the preservation of God's word, even if we may not see eye to eye on what that looks like, and the need to not tamper with the text of scripture itself, as well as the authority of the original languages. I, I think there are principles that um, I would definitely agree with. Um, I just don't come to the same conclusions uh, necessarily that the confessional bibliologists do. Um, but hopefully that that's helpful there. Uh, Michael, you say, would you say that our confession gives us a methodology on text criticism? Um, I don't know if it would give us necessarily a model on text criticism. I don't think one eight, the intention of that paragraph, I don't think was really meant to say, here's the specific readings of a particular text that you need to provide uh, or that you need to use when looking at a text. I think the point of the the paragraph was to show what does the preservation of scripture look like? That God in the original languages through the extant text has provided preservation of uh, the word of God, that God's word has been lost. His church has access to it. 
I think that's the point. Um, I think if we try to read some kind of textual critical methodology into the confession, at least into that paragraph, I think you're going to be uh, hard pressed to do that. Uh, so we have to be careful about that. All right. So I have a slide deck here. I think <clears throat> I wasn't going to do a slide deck at first, but now uh, the more I thought about it, given this is definitely more of a lecture heavy episode, I think that having a slide deck will help hopefully help people be a little bit more engaged um, than just listening, looking at my face as I ramble on. So here we go. So looking at Erasmus first. Okay. Erasmus, Desiderius Erasmus, he was born in the 1460s in Holland, what is now the Netherlands. Uh, he's probably best known for publishing the first Greek New Testament, which was a diglot, meaning it had two different languages uh, printed in it. Uh, it had, you know, Greek on one side, Latin on the other. Uh, so Erasmus was printing, you know, he wasn't trying to get rid of the Latin text. He was trying to at least present a version of it. Um, and he was putting Greek in there as well. And there were multiple editions printed throughout Erasmus's lifetime. I, I, I didn't look up the exact number. I think there were five that he did in total. Um, and I would venture to say that his work became the standard, at least for a time, as it relates to the Greek uh, New Testament. I mean, there was no published Greek New Testament at the time, uh, you know, before you had handwritten copies as it related to it, just books in general, but especially as it relates to the text of Scripture. Um, handwriting was the, the thing before you had... Um, any kind of printing press. And this was not long after the printing press was invented and was being used. So the printing press was relatively, uh, still relatively new at this time. So it allowed for the mass production of things like this. So popularizing the texts of the New Testament uh, with, throughout uh, Europe, at, at least in Erasmus's general area. So being able to publish a work like this really allowed him to get his work um, out there in a way that just couldn't have been done before uh, the printing press. So as it relates to the, you know, the, the text of the New Testament, the Greek New Testament, uh, there was no published work um, before that. So this allowed it to get out in a way that was that hadn't been done um, before. But as we're going to see, Erasmus's view of the text would not be shared um, by the Reformed excuse me, by the Reformed, at least most of these, but they would continue to benefit from his work, uh, even with Erasmus being a Roman Catholic. Uh, let's see. Is it, and, and Sorry, guys. I, I want to interact with your comments as I go along here, so I may stop the presentation here. Please ask away. I, I, you guys aren't annoying me by asking questions. Uh, Michael, again, is it most likely that the concept of a TR is somewhat a myth? Um, not sure what you mean by that. If you mean from a historical perspective, no. I mean, I think Mueller is pretty clear on that. And Texas Receptus, quote unquote, uh, as it was called, um, which came, you know, that name came after Erasmus. Um, but I think that if you're talking about from a historical perspective, no, I, I think you can, you can see that historically. If you're talking about in an absolute sense, like, is this some kind of biblical concept um i mean i i don't know if you could draw the term texas receptus from the scriptures per se but you know that would require a little bit more thought um but good questions though all right so looking at some of erasmus's understandings here okay so number one here erasmus would act as co-author with the text at times and the picture here this is actually erasmus's third edition of his greek new testament um this is from the uh, the president and fellows of queen's college cambridge this uh, picture was from and what's interesting about his third edition is that this is uh, the first edition of erasmus to include the comma johannium or the comma johannium as uh, dr real let's call it um with the three witnesses. So this is his third edition. Um, so as it relates to Erasmus's understanding of how to approach the text, sometimes he would act as co-author. 
um, with the biblical writers themselves. So if you look at page 139, I'm going to be doing a lot of reading. Okay, so bear with me, but it's important to establish, um, you know, your sources as you're going through this. I, I don't, uh, you know, I don't want to just make assumptions historically um, with without any kind of uh, either primary or secondary source material. That would hurt my credibility. So I'm going to be reading quite a bit today, so bear with me. But this is from Kron's book, page 139. Uh, he's, this is in relation to 1 Corinthians 7, 1. Uh, he, let's talk, quote, he, Kron's is talking about Erasmus, he pays attention to the imperfections of the authors he studies and does not hesitate to act as a co-writer. This independent attitude lies at the basis of his interpretations, his paraphrases, his translation, and his conjectures. Okay, so Kranz is talking about this in looking at a conjecture that Erasmus made as it relates to 1 Corinthians 7, 1. And this is Erasmus's words, okay? So I'm going to be quoting Erasmus here in relation uh, to this. Erasmus says, quote, This is one place, I think, in which it would have been appropriate to add the conjunction, and he quotes Greek, which would correspond to, quotes Greek again, but this is very frequent for Paul, and for this reason, Jerome concludes that Paul was hardly well experienced in the Greek language. Okay, and then Kron says, quote, an interesting annotation. Indeed, the contrast between verse 1b and verse 2 could, would be clear had Paul adopted Erasmus's suggestion. Paul did not do so, and the very idea that he could have done so is anachronistic, of course. The short annotation shows clearly an important aspect of Erasmus' textual scholarship, intense interaction with the text, both Greek and Latin. So you can see here, Erasmus is making suggestions. Well, Paul probably, or he even, he agrees with Jerome, who is uh, an important character as it relates to the Latin translation of scripture. Uh, but he takes Jerome's understanding that Paul was hardly well experienced in the Greek language. So he's basically going back in what he thinks, at least, is Paul's text and saying, well, you know, Paul's Greek's pretty bad over here. He should have written this, but he didn't. Right. So you can see Erasmus is kind of playing this co-author with Paul instead of receiving what he thinks is the original text. He goes back and tries to uh, make suggestions on what the text should have said. OK, now this is a conjecture, and I don't think this ended up in. Uh, Erasmus's actual printed Greek text because it's important to keep in mind that Erasmus was trying as I think he was trying his level best to stick with the the text that he had and, and not make changes to it, which I think is a, a pretty good principle when in doubt, leave it out. Right. Just don't mess with it. Just copy what you have and move on. But Erasmus had no problem uh, putting notes and, and saying what he really thought about the text. Um, but here is an example of where he thinks that Paul could have done better, right? Um, so I think a question to ask as it relates to that is, you know, would the Reformed have followed that that particular uh, that particular notion of trying to go back and say, well, would Paul have done this or should Paul have done that? I don't think so. And I think that's a, a difference that you can see. Uh, maybe from a, a confessional bibliology position that would follow the Protestant Reformed and maybe the understanding of Erasmus. Is a, I think by and large, the Protestant Reform, uh, actually I know the Protestant Reform, were trying to, re they were receiving what they thought was the word of God and claiming it was an errant without error and trying to receive the word as, as they had it. Um, so, you know, I, I highly doubt the reform would follow this line of thinking, especially the emphasis given on every jot and tittle being preserved by God as found in Matthew 5.18, which was commonly interpreted to refer to God's special providential care in keeping his word for the church. And you can see evidence of this in Milne's book on the providential preservation of scripture. If we look at briefly at page 56, briefly at page 56, I think we can see this. I can find it here. Um, Calvin upholds unique possession of the Old Testament in other ways. Calvin's commentary in Matthew 5, 17 through 18. In 2 Timothy 3, 16, opposite Christ is not coming to abolish the law. 
comprising the entire Old Testament word of God. Christ fulfilled the ceremonies, but the moral law or Ten Commandments remain fully enforced in the New Testament era. Moreover, so important and foundational is the, new, is the law and covenant, and the gospel is nothing else than a fulfillment of the law, so that both, with one consent, declare God to be their author. Incidentally, this is a reason why the Reformed Orthodox could apply the principle behind Matthew 5.18 to the New Testament also, end quote. That's from page 56 of Milne. So I, I think you can see that you know God has preserved his word, so they're, they're wanting to receive the word um, as they saw it, not question it, not go back and try to be critical of that word, but seeing it as God's preserved word, and therefore it should be uh, received. And I think they would see this as questioning God himself if they were doing this. Um, if God has preserved his word and we have it, we shouldn't question it. Uh, in fact, the implication is that if a text was not preserved, it isn't scripture, right? Because I think you can see that because of the stark contrast that is made among the Reformed between the scriptures and their special providential care of those scriptures versus other writings, like the writings of a Plato or an Aristotle or, uh, you know, Homer's Iliad or something like that. Uh, so there's a, ver there's a you know, a, a difference there. So I think Erasmus would disagree with this in principle in as much as, um, you know, he would see this, the word of God is received and therefore we should leave it alone. He clearly thought that he could tinker with what he thought Paul said, uh, which I, I just don't think you find that principle among the reform. I think you'd find a, a pretty stark contrast there with it um, as it relates to understanding what the reform thought as it relates to. Uh, you know, the scriptures contrast with the text. I think an example of this you can see um, if we look at page 69 of Renahan's Judah and Impartial Reader, he quotes or references Benjamin Keach. Uh, he says, quote, Benjamin Keach speaks to the topic in his essay of the divine authority of the Holy Scriptures. He contrasts the preservation of scripture with the loss of other pagan sacred books of antiquity, calling the preservation, this preservation, little less than miraculous, citing ancient texts such as Livy's Decades, the Book of Sil uh, Sibyls, as well as enemies, Antiochus, Epiphanes, and Diocletian of the church who sought to destroy every extant copy of Scripture. For Keech, preservation was the sur survival of all the copies of Scripture throughout the ages. Now, I, I don't think that all the Reformed Orthodox necessarily believe that every extant copy of scripture was preserved but you can see the contrast there between pagan writings and the writings of scripture there's a special miraculous providential preservation that's happening there that doesn't happen necessarily with other writings that doesn't happen with other pagan writings scripture is special in that respect um, and erasmus seemed to think that he could just go back and tinker with this like it was any other book so i think that's um, you, you know, that that's important to point out. Um, now, this doesn't mean that all the Reformed held that the, the TR had the proper text in every situation. Um, and this also does not mean, as Milne seems to suggest on pages 145, 146 of his book on preservation, that the Reformed thought their text uh, was fixed. I think you can see this, for example, from Thomas Goodwin, who is the co-author of the Savoy Declaration, along with John Owen. Um in, as it relates to a manuscript that he had access to, Codex Alexandrinus, which is a pretty early manuscript um, that was previously unavailable to the English continent prior to 1628, and he chose at least one reading above the TR from it. Um, so this notion of a fixed text should not be you know, considered monolithic. Um, you can find info on this. It's an article by Stephen Peel, a Westminster divine in an Alexandrian codex, if you want to look at that further. All right, moving along here, uh, the need to correct the New Testament. I guess this this kind of falls in line, um, at least to some extent, with what we talked about just a second ago with Erasmus. So if we look at page page one eighty three of Cron's book, one eighty three. This is from chapter seven. 
Tron says, quote, in his apologies, Erasmus defined and defended one basic point time and time again, the right and the need to correct the New Testament text. In this process of emendation, conjectures played a small but interesting role. Some conjectures found their way into the New Testament text, but most were restricted to the annotations. I don't know if I pronounce that correctly, but basically Erasmus's annotations. Uh, Erasmus was always more interested in readings than in manuscripts as a whole. He did not do textual criticism uh, in the style of Poliziano. In the case of the New Testament, his approach resembles somewhat the present-day local gene genealogical method in its thoroughgoing eclect eclectic dress. When he knew variant readings, he tried to find the most original one and to explain the origin of the other or others. Okay, so the point here being that that I want to bring out is that Erasmus uh, thought he had the right and the need to correct the New Testament text, that there was a right and a need to do that. So this one is, is interesting. Um, so on its face, it seems Erasmus did not think that the text he had available to him was the proper text or that he could reconstruct it, or he, I don't think he would have come to this conclusion that he needed to uh, correct the New Testament text. Um, the corrections were still needed. Okay, and I think you can also see this from the previous example we gave surrounding 1 Corinthians 7, 1, where he attempts to correct Paul's alleged incorrect use of the Greek. He thought there were some areas of improvement to be made, and therefore corrections were needed. And this also goes against the confessional text position of a fixed text in relation to the TR, at least as espoused by Milne, as it relates to what he says Reformed Orthodox believe. Okay, so even one of the TR editors didn't hold to this. Uh, notion. Um, and Erasmus was even open to better textual critical methodologies, but he was also very self-aware that he was stuck uh, with what he had. So if we, you know, we jump to the next page here. Uh, Erasmus says, quote, even if this rule is not foolproof, we shall have to cling eagerly to it until our critics can give us a better one. Perhaps they are going to remind us of the resources of the final revelation. I feel quite confident that such a revelation will not be denied to the Christians if only necessity demands it and our resources let us down. So he was aware that, you know, he, he's working with what he has, but it could always be improved upon. So would the Reformed have followed in this? I think it would be problematic if Erasmus meant correcting you know, the actual original text of scripture. That seems to be what Kranz is saying here. But I think uh, the bigger point to point out here is that Erasmus was always looking for improvement in terms of how he was editing his text. It wasn't, you know, I'm just copying what someone else gave me and I'm not going to have any opinion on it or think that it couldn't be improved upon. I think what Erasmus was doing was he was trying to play it safe, but he was willing to still say, here's, you know, what the text should have been, at least in my opinion. I don't know if, uh, in general, the Orthodox reform would have gone that route. Um, Dr. Riddle actually might be able to speak to that a little bit more. But it's interesting that Erasmus uh, took this approach um, in a seemingly normal way um, as he was editing his text. And this next point, I think, plays into this a little more. Okay. As we go to the next slide here, Erasmus's text was not, he did not believe his text was the final word on the text of the New Testament. Okay, now, and this I think came up at least later, he did not believe his text was the final word, and he was open to correction and improvement. And this, as I said, this one is similar to the previous point. He did not believe that he had the final text, at least later on. And again, he did try to stay as close as possible to the received Greek text that, at least in the form that he had it, with the manuscripts he had access to. Um, but there is an understanding that there could be issues with his text. His work was not considered the final authority, from his vantage point at least. And again, I, I think this can be seen from the fact that he sought to correct his work through multiple editions and sought... Um, better resources and, and better practices if they could be found. Um, one thing to point out is that Erasmus and Kranz brings out too, that Erasmus was open, kind of at least in some places, open to having readers of his work and studiers of his work actually uh, bring their own opinion into the text 
or at least to what he thought the text should be. Uh, he was not here to say, well, my work is final. This is the word of God. Leave it alone. He was willing to have readers of his work uh, provide their own opinions uh, and, and even open to, to correction of those uh, of, of opinions that he provided. Um, so he was, you know, sometimes it was just, hey, reader, just here's your give us your opinion. You know, if you think this is the better reading, OK, you know, I'm not going to sit here and necessarily be dogmatic about it. OK, I, I think that's that, again, goes against this idea of a fixed text that you would find um, among uh, at least allegedly among the Reformed Orthodox. And then uh, looking at another aspect here of Erasmus, go to the next slide, the infallibility of Scripture. And I think this is the most important one and the biggest contrast between Beza and Erasmus and Erasmus and confessional bibliology is this notion of, uh, of infallibility. So if we look at page 187 of, and 188 of Kron's book, I'm going to read a little bit here. Uh, let's see here. So Kron says, quote, virtually absent are conjectural emendations that are intended to safeguard biblical infallibility. For instance, harmonistic conjectures across different Bible books. He even accepted, without much ado, that the evangelists made errors in their narrative. When he was confronted with variant readings, Erasmus's critical acumen made him detect and mistrust harmonizing easier readings. When there were no variant readings, he would rather have assumed an error made by the apostle or the evangelist than to indulge in conjectural emendation, especially since for him, in line with Jerome, the existence of such errors did not detract from the value and authority of Scripture. A good example is found in his discussion of Mark 2.26. According to Erasmus, it is perfectly acceptable to suggest that Mark here suffers a memory lapse by mentioning the high priest Abiathar, and this is cross-reference from 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 6, uh, as pointed out by Kranz. So this is a huge contrast between Bayes and Erasmus. And again, certainly Erasmus, the Reformed Orthodox and confessional bibliologists. This notion that Erasmus was willing to say that biblical authors, not copies, not copies of the originals, but the originals themselves have errors in them given by the authors themselves, by the apostles, the evangelists. Uh, he's willing to freely and openly accept that. And us Orthodox Christians go, that is a problem, right? That's a problem, because that flies in the face of biblical infallibility and inerrancy, right? So Erasmus clearly didn't believe in this idea of biblical uh, inerrancy. Okay, so very interesting that uh, Erasmus brings us up. Um, so, you know, you're, you're denying this. You're certainly going against, uh, you know, confessional bibliology and the Reformed Orthodox. You know, this would have pretty big ramifications. You know, this would mean that God, when he inspired the text, messed up, so to speak. Right. It means that God can err in the inspiration of his word. And we really can't have confidence in his word at that point. And it's interesting that Erasmus tried to, along with Jerome, uh, early church father, you know, had no problems trying to say, well, you know, this doesn't take away from the value and authority of Scripture, but I don't know how you could really have a good authority of Scripture at, in its category as Scripture if you don't have biblical infallibility. Erasmus clearly, uh, you know, had issues with that. So there's no way Erasmus could have held to the Reformed's classic understanding of authoritita divina duplex, or the twofold authority of Scripture. And I'm going to quote from Mueller here from his Dictionary of Latin and Greek Theological Terms, second edition. He says, quote, twofold divine authority, a distinction between one, the authoritas rerum, or the authority of the things of Scripture, the substantia doctrinae, sub substance of doctrine, and two, the authoritas verborum, or the authority of the words of Scripture arising from the accidens scriptonis, the accident of the writing. The authority of the substantia or res is a formal inward authority that belongs both to the text of Scripture in the original languages and to the accurate translations of Scripture. The authoritas verborum 
is an external and accidental authority that belongs only to the text in the original languages and is a property or accident lost in translation. Thus, the infil infallibilitas of the originals is both quod verbum and quod res, whereas the infallibilitas of the translations is only quod res. So, Erasmus was willing to undermine both these principles because he was willing to go back to the originals and say, well, the evangelist messed up. So he's attacking the reform concept of infallibility of both the words and the substance of uh, the text, at the very least looking, um, attacking coad verbum, coad verbum, uh, even if he accepts maybe res or the substance of the text as authoritative and, and maybe infallible. But he did not believe in the necessarily in the infallibility of coad verbum of the words of the text. So this flies in the face of uh, reformed understandings of scripture and certainly a confessional bibliology understanding of scripture. So Erasmus, he screwed up big time here. Okay, he blundered big time here. Uh, and this type of thinking was not confined just to Erasmus. Kranz, in here on page 177, he brings out Martin Luther uh, as in, you know, attributing error to John in the narrative in John 18, 13 through 24. It as it relates to where did Peter deny Christ? Was it at Caiaphas's house or Annas's house? And it seems Luther had no problem with uh, John having messed up, and it didn't seem to bother him. Okay, so that's it, it wasn't just confined to Erasmus, you see, even among the early reformed, uh, uh, early reformers, uh, you see this kind of thinking uh, going on. So I, I don't know if this was a mainstream kind of thinking, but it certainly wasn't confined to uh, Erasmus. In fact, Cron seems to say that a higher view of scripture, which saw a discouragement of questioning Bible, biblical integrity, really rose up more uh, later, and I don't think this means that an errancy was not held before or even during Erasmus, but that it seems that it wasn't as prominent at the very least. Um, if Peter Gurry, uh, who teaches at Phoenix Seminary, Peter Gurry said on page two of his article, Inerrancy, in the initial text, quote, both the practice of textual criticism, however rudimentary from our vantage point, and the doctrine of inerrancy long predate the Reformation. So, end quote. So you can see this uh, definite understanding of inerrancy there, but it wasn't necessarily um, as widespread as you would find in the Reformation later on, especially the post-reform. Uh, you know, once you get in the 17th century, that's pretty much a standard, uh, a standard understanding of, of Scripture. All right. Uh, another thing to point out, too, as it relates to Erasmus's work, um, Erasmus he also did not have a high view of Scripture as a whole. He thought that, for instance, uh, and I think this, I don't know if this is the only area, but if we look at the book of Revelation, uh, we see Erasmus having a very low view of the book. Okay, He saw it as less than the Gospels and the Epistles. Um, and if we, we can see this in his understanding of, or his work on back-translating the end of the book of Revelation, from the Latin to Greek, because he lacked the material to be able to, um, he lacked the material to be able to translate it in the Greek. Okay, so this, you know, hopefully this should settle to rest. Uh, if there are any notions out there that this is some sort of, uh, you know, unsubstantiated claim about Erasmus back translating uh, the the end of Revelation from Latin to Greek, this will this should settle that. Uh, because Erasmus himself said he did, and I'm about to uh, about to read that. Okay, so this is from. I'm going to be looking at pages 55 and 56 of Erasmus. In and before I do that, on page 54 and and 55, Kranz, uh lists from a, another author some other areas in the Book of Revelation where Erasmus backtrained from Latin to Greek. Uh, we can see this in places like Revelation 2.2, Revelation 2.17, Revelation 2.20, Revelation 3.12, Revelation 6.11, and Revelation 22.11. That doesn't necessarily mean that the whole verse was back-translated, but at the very least, contents of uh, that verse 
um, at the very least, some of the contents of those verses were translated back from the Latin into the Greek. So the ending of Revelation isn't the only place where that was done. But here's Erasmus in talking about you know, the, the final verses, Revelation 22, 16 through 21, that he back translated from the Latin to the Greek. So he says, this is Erasmus. This is primary source material. This is not Kron's interpreting him. This is uh, this is Erasmus himself. He says, quote, there was no doubt that some things were missing and it was not much. Therefore, we completed the Greek from our Latin texts so that there might be no gap. We did not want to hide this from the reader, however, and acknowledged in the annotations. Again, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, that we had uh, what we had done in order that if our words differed in some respect, from those that the author of this work had provided, the reader who obtained a manuscript could restore them. So full stop there a second. So you can see Erasmus has no problem with a reader coming along and completing the work for him or, or correcting his work or whatever the case might be. Hey, if you have the material that I don't have, please come and fix it for me, right? So we move on here with Erasmus. And even this that we did here, we would not have dared to do in the case of the Gospels, nor indeed in the Apostolic Epistles. The style of this book is very simple, and its contents are mostly narrative, let alone the fact that its author has long since been unknown. Long since been unknown. Finally, this place is only the ending of the book. So you can see that Erasmus had a very low view of the book of Revelation. Oh, we would never have back-translated from the Latin to the Greek if this was the Gospels or the Apostolic Epistles. No, no. No, we would never have touched those. But, you know, Revelation, we don't know who the author is. It's it's kind of, it's an insignificant book. Who cares if I toy with it? You know, essentially is what he's saying. So you can see that Revelation was not seen on par with these other New Testament books in in uh, Erasmus's mindset. Definitely a difference, you know, from a confessional bibliology perspective. Um, so, you know, would the Reformed follow? No, they would have rejected this concept in total, uh, you know, rejecting the concept of infallibility. Um, I think you can see that very clearly. Pages 34 and 35 of To the Judicious and Impartial Reader from Jim Renahan lays out what infallibility would have meant uh, during this time, especially as it relates to the Second London Baptist Convention of Faith. And Erasmus's view smacks against that view of the Reformed uh, entirely. So that's a, an overview of you know, Erasmus. There's a lot more that could be said, but I think those are some of the some of the main points here that um, that I think we can bring out. So we you know we can look at Beza a little bit here. His, this is going to be pretty quick. Um, yeah, I think Erasmus was the most important aspect of this, but looking at Beza, I think will help to kind of contrast what we're seeing here in Erasmus. And you can see the progression of the understanding of scripture as time goes on. So Beza was born in 1519 in France. So three years after Erasmus's Novum Instrumentum was published, right, 1516. So he was interacting with Erasmus much later. Um, and he would focus quite a bit on the work of Stephanos, um, at least in one of his editions. Okay. Uh Let's see. He ended up creating his own Greek New Testaments. Um, if we look at page 193 of uh, Kron's book here, page 193, find it. It's a lot easier than typing out all of these quotes. I can tell you that right now. Okay, so this is actually a quote from Beza. His quote, to me, it has always been a matter of utmost scrupulousness not to change even a tittle in these holy books out of mere conjecture. Okay, so you can see Erasmus's that the mindset is very different already, as you can see, between Erasmus and Beza. Beza sees these books as inspired of God, and he sees them as holy books, and they shouldn't be tampered with, right? They shouldn't be tampered with. So I'm, he's certainly trying to stay away from uh, using mere conjecture as it relates to the text in the New Testament, or the text of Scripture, at least, as a whole. As he see, he's using that framework, tittle, right? Tittle of these holy books. He probably has Matthew 8, 5, 18 
uh, in his mind. So you can already see this Reformation understanding of Scripture as coming from God and being authoritative and the implications of what that means, right? If Scripture comes from God, uh, then we shouldn't you know, be toying with Scripture. We have to be treating it with the utmost care. It should not be treated as any other book, right? So the mindset is 180 degrees different than uh, than you would find um, in Erasmus. Uh, but in spite of this statement that he made, Beza still made conjectures in the New Testament text, um, and what, some were even considered problematic, even uh, within the TR tradition itself. Scrivener, for instance, uh, gave some critique of Beza. Look at page 197. Uh, Kranz actually provides uh, an example of this. Okay, Scrivener uh, says this. This is from his authorized edition, page 60, quote, and this is quoted in Kranz. Quote, doubtless they rested mainly on the later editions of Basil's Greek New Testament. This is referring to the KJV translators. On certain occasions, it may be the translators yielded too much to Beza's somewhat arbitrary decisions, but they lived in a time when his name was the very highest among Reformed theologians, when means for arriving at an independent judgment were few and scattered, and when the first principles of textual criticism had yet to be gathered from a long process of painful induction. His most obvious and glaring errors, their good sense easily enabled them to avoid." End quote. So you can see even Scrivener, who is... Uh, a big name in the TR tradition uh, in his his edition is widely circulated and published by the Trinitarian Bible Society. But even he was critical of someone else in the TR tradition, uh, namely Beza, uh, for his work. And you can see Scrivener saying arbitrary decisions. So that would be conjectures, right? And another difference, too, is that you see Beza primarily relying excuse me, on printed editions of the Greek New Testament. Um, and this, you know, did him no favors when it came to actually being critical with the text as Erasmus had been. Um, so I think you can, you might see a little bit of the pendulum swing where Erasmus was relying very much on empirical evidence and didn't seem to have a theological framework uh, or a, a a quote-unquote confessional bibliology as it relates to coming to the text, or an idea of infallibility, um, or God's preservation of his word, necessarily. Beza had a very strong theological foundation that helped him as he approached um, the text. So I, I think that informed his understanding of the text into using printed editions rather than uh, focusing a lot on the extant texts. Okay. Um, and this is, I think, a methodology that was used for years after Beza. Um, and in fact, Dr. Jeff Riddle, um, in speaking for the confessional text position, um, you know, brings this this out. That this was the methodology that was utilized by Scrivener of using printed text to develop another text. Um, you can see this in Riddle's lecture, Reasoning with Them That Believe, from the 2022 Kept Pure in All Ages conference. Um, relying on printed editions for future Greek texts seems to be the common method after Erasmus to the mid 20th century. Okay. Um, if we look forward a little bit here, I oh, will skip that. Okay. So Abeza was not concerned about manuscripts or individual manuscripts, ex with one exception. Um, but he was not concerned with individual manuscripts. And again, that, that's just his primary focus was printed editions of the New Testament. Um, and he was also the first to use really kind of a, a critical edition or maybe critical editions of the Greek New Testament for their text editing, and he relied on those printed editions. And I think this led Beza to making many uh, textual assumptions. So if we look forward a little bit, page 241, page 241 in Kron's book. Page 241 of Kron's book. Uh, Kron says, examples are numerous of Beza stating that some reading is found in all manuscripts when in fact Stefano's edition is simply too small. 
And Matthew 18.29, based on notes of the Vulgate, has no equivalent to the majority text reading. And writes, and this is him quoting Beza, which we find, however, in all our old Greek manuscripts. The words are uh, the words are not found, for instance, in D and one Stephanos B or Beta and uh, in another manuscript. In Mark 10:29, Erasmus suspects of the majority reading uh, to be a harmonization with Matthew 19:29 and Luke 8:29. Beza remarks, but we find it in all copies, though the words are not found in D. Beza's not alone in this naivete. So Beza relied heavily, again, on, on printed editions, and it led him to making some textual assumptions. Instead of going and checking uh, you know, the, the manuscript evidence, he chose to rely on printed editions. Now, maybe he didn't have access to all of these manuscripts. That may have been the case. I don't know. But the fact of the matter is his focus was not on the extant texts, but on uh, printed editions. Um, and then if you look on page 332, Kranz brings out this interesting contrast between Erasmus and Beza. He says, quote, whereas for Erasmus, the Greek text of the New Testament is, first of all, a source, which he treats in essentially the same way as any other classical text. For Beza, it is, first of all, Holy Scripture, which has to be treated with the utmost reverence. In Beza, we observe the Greek teacher at work, the humanist scholar, with a vast knowledge of classical literature, but also the Reformation theologian for whom scripture is the infallible source of, of salvation, end quote. So Beza's theological assumptions guided him into how he treated the text of the New Testament, while Erasmus, although seeing scripture as authoritative, was willing to deny that infallible status to scripture. Okay, and Kranz does not seem to speak favorably of Beza's theological convictions regarding the text of scripture, um, in fact, if we look at page 318 real quick, page 318, he says this. Beza apparently regards being learned as a condition for having access to the treasures of Scripture, at least at the level at which these are revealed in his editions. But being pious is even more necessary as offense against uncontrolled and destructive learning. At this point, it is hard not to make a reference to the two important components of Beza's own identity and biography, humanism and reformation. He will not and cannot deny his humanist upbringing, but once he is one for the cause of the reformation, his scholarly qualities are, ex are exercised within the church. In the end, they are also restricted and even somewhat distorted by this setting. So it seems that Kranz is bringing critique to Beza for his theological understanding um, of the text. And I think that's problematic, uh, at least to some extent. Um, you know, even I, who do not hold a confessional to the confessional text position, you know, I, I do believe that scripture is infallible and I do believe God has uh, preserved his word, that it has not been lost. Um, I do believe that God has uh, provided his word for his people. So, you know, I wouldn't have a problem um, uh, with the critique that his understanding, uh, you know, somehow hindered him. It may have made him a little bit too myopic, maybe. I don't know. Maybe when he could have, within biblical parameters, been more open to looking at uh, some of the other evidence that was available. But if we're just simply, if Kranz is simply critiquing Beza because of his theological assumptions, uh, just because they're theological assumptions, uh, that would certainly be a problem. So, which I don't think we should do um, as as Christians. But I hope this has been helpful. I know it's a lot of material. I threw a lot of material out here, and um, you know, like I said, it's going to be a pretty technical discussion. But I hope this gives you an understanding, a better understanding, anyways, of the understanding of the text with Erasmus and Beza. And if you're struggling with these concepts surrounding confessional theology, that these historical realities, I hope you to think through the implications of what that position is providing uh, and be able to, you know, come to, uh, you know, the correct conclusion. Uh, I think that confessional bibliology, its heart is in the right place. It's reacting against a lot of the liberalism and progressive understanding of scripture that is out there. 
And I think that's to be commended. But I think we have to be careful not to overreact so much that we miss some of these important concepts, even within the history of your own text, uh, which I think the confessional text position does. So hopefully this has been helpful and that you can utilize this information um, and feel free to, you know, ping me with questions. You can comment in the video or, you know, message us uh, in various ways on our platforms and, and, you know, we can talk about this further. It's good discussion. Certainly the discussion doesn't end here. Um, it's going to be one, I think that's going to continue to go on, but um, I just hope that this information is helpful in light of those things. But anyways, thank you everyone for joining me today. Uh, for those that did, and I, uh, I hope you have a great weekend for those in the U.S. Have a great Columbus Day on Monday if you have that day off, and a great Lord's Day on Sunday. Take care.